say welcome. I know Jake already said that, but uh, I know I have folks here visiting family for baptisms, and I know it's a Furman Parents Weekend. Green Lantern Fan Club Society, anybody in that? Maybe that was another weekend, I'm sorry. I think. Sorry, sorry. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. If you're visiting, we are studying through, this is the second gospel in the New Testament. It's believed to be the first one that was written, and we are uh, several weeks into this series, and we're going to try to do this every four years, hopefully, to just come back to the four gospels and hear who is Jesus, what did he say, what did, what did he do. We're going to be beginning in verse 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow it in the, um, in the order of worship there. I, I did a series in our midweek Bible studies back in the, the winter and the spring about hard sayings of Jesus. You know, these times where he said something that's just, it seems like he's being mean or it seems like he's being rude or it seems like he's being unnecessarily confusing. And one of the texts that we looked at was the parallel of our passage this morning. It's, it's in Matthew. We're going to look at this one from Mark. But I quoted to some of you who are in that study what one of my seminary professors said about this episode. He said that this is the one time in the four Gospels where Jesus let someone win in a verbal exchange. Now, I want to hang on to the fact that he is God the Son, that he was not, you know, bested, but that he, he yielded to a mortal. Um... It's even better when you think about the fact that the Gospel of Mark, it is generally agreed, was written for a more Gentile audience. And the, the person who he lets win, whom he lets win, is a Gentile. But for our purposes, let me say this. Um, what, what you're about to see is somebody, and it's a quick snapshot of it, but they're pleading with Jesus and he doesn't seem to be listening. And that might really resonate with some of you. I mean, it may be that, and again, when, when I teach and preach, I try to make no assumption that everybody's coming from the same place or that everyone here is even a Christian. But if you are here and you're a professing Christian and you've been taught these things and you're looking at your life saying, okay, I have this massive thing going on and it's unresolved and it's very painful and I was taught, boy, if you have a need, you need to go to God with your need. If you have a need you, need, you need to go to Jesus in prayer with your need. And it, Well, I have, and it just is like he's not listening. And I haven't just been praying for days. I've been praying for weeks or months or years, and it, I, I just feel like he's staring at me, and he's not responding. If you have been through that, this text is for you. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, 
For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bless you and we thank you for your word. And we need, need, need for you to speak into our lives and our hearts. We always need that, but there's something about when we're together hearing where we need to say to you that we need you to help us. Thank you for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John writing these things down. Thank you that you've protected it so that this morning we get to hear this. Now open our hearts and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Yesterday... Uh, my family got to strike something off the, off the list of things in Greenville we've been meaning to do and haven't done yet. Yesterday, we went together to the uh, Bob Jones Art Gallery and Museum on the campus. And, and this is not the, the thing up on Heritage Green, but it's the, the large collection on the campus. And I'd heard and heard and heard and heard, when you go, you're not going to believe it. And I, I said, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And we went, and I can't believe it. And so I, I proclaim this to you, that I cannot believe it. But it, it, it really, it's just this... Blow, it, I, I experienced what everybody who had been to it said to me, where after a while you're going, what is this doing here? Why, how, how did they get all these pieces? Amazing, amazing collection of sacred art, and I would commend it to you. One painting that caught my eye yesterday, large painting, uh, the title, I believe, was The Coronation of Mary. And it depicts Jesus with a small crown, and he's placing it on the head of Mary. Now, this is obviously coming out of a medieval Catholic tradition where a lot of the sacred art there um, from whence it comes. The explanatory little note beside it, of course, gave the artist and the date and the, and the medium and all that. But in the, in the explanatory comments under it, and again, that's going to be from a certain perspective, it said that art during this period often shows Mary as the compassionate face, not Jesus. And I'd actually heard that before. And it said that, this, if I'm not mistaken, this piece of art was done when, the, when the, the Black Death was just raging through Europe. And that's also a time where in the established church there was a real famine of preaching and teaching from the Bible about Jesus, about who he is, you know, in the people's language. Now, you might, might every once in a while, if you're in a small town, hear a homily in Latin. But hardly anybody spoke Latin. And so there's this famine of, like, here's who Jesus actually is, and here's, here's what the Word says he really is about. But what you are seeing and what's screaming at you is how hard life is and how much tragedy and suffering there is. That's all around you. And so what you begin to see in art is a, a compassionate, soft, kind of like, here's a person I can talk to that might go to bat for me, Mary, but not necessarily Jesus. And it was around that time that Martin Luther was still not converted. And when he became a Christian later, and he looked back on that time, he said, love God? I hated God. And the, the depictions he saw in the monastery or in prints of Jesus, stern, and it may be that that's kind of you right now. I don't know. I don't know what your mental picture of Jesus is, and I don't know 
what exa- I know some things about some of your lives, but not, not everything. But you really might be in that situation of, okay, again, I was taught, if you have a problem, go to Jesus. I've been going to Jesus. I, I have physically been on my knees and pleaded with Him for help, and it's just like He's not, it's not even like He's staring back at me. At least He'd be looking at me. It just is like He's just standing there. What, what do you do when you plead with Jesus and He just does not seem to be helping you? All right, let's look. I want to break this passage uh, down. And I, I want the sermon points to be what I would commend to you as a way to study a passage of the Bible. Now, I've never, I've never used these three points for sermon points. But here's what I want to do. All right, observation, interpretation, and then application. You really could study any passage of the Bible that way. So let's just do that collectively. Observation, that's going to be who, what, where, when, kind of get our bearings. Interpretation, why? Why was this said? Why was this done? And then application, just try to connect the dots to who we are in in our lives. All right? Observation, who, what, where, when. Who's there? Most likely, other people, the disciples, the apostles, but they're they're not mentioned in the text, so I'm just going to kind of put that aside and say, maybe, but let's not focus there. Obviously, Jesus is there, the main character of the Gospel of Mark. And now we could, of course, talk forever about who Jesus is, but I want to read a prophecy about Jesus. And actually, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is quoted and attributed or or, or directly applied to Jesus. It's from one of these things called a servant song. And a servant song are these passages in the prophecy of Isaiah. And they describe this kind of mysterious person that God is going to send. He's the definitive servant. But the way God talks to him is not like any other servant. At times it seems like he's talking to someone who can do things that only God can do. And from our perspective, we understand these are fulfilled in the Messiah. One of the servant songs in Isaiah, this is chapter 42, it just says this in passing, Isaiah 42, 3. And if you're here this morning and you feel fragile, physically, emotionally, whatever. Listen to this. 800 years before Jesus comes, it says about the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Let me read that one more time. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, the Messiah, when he comes is not going to be in the business of just smacking people down who are struggling and saying, help. That's not who he is. And just tuck that away, that we're looking at the Messiah who fulfills that, all right? Tuck that away. We've got Jesus. we got the woman, obviously. We don't know a lot about her. Was she married? Was she a single mom? Did she have other children? Don't know. We know she's a Gentile. She is a Syrophoenician. She lives in the area, or at least made her way to the area of Tyre. And this is where it's great that there's scholars and historians that know this kind of stuff, that write books. Apparently, there was great, even like extraordinary tension, not just between Jews, generically, and Gentiles in this area, but between the area of Tyre and Jews in Nazareth. Guess where Jesus was from? 
what's he doing in this area? Why is this happening? We got a Gentile woman. And we learn that she's a mother. She's a mother of a young daughter. The young daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit, a demon. Now, I feel the need here to kind of slow down for a second. Like when we looked at the text about the, you know, the paralytic who couldn't get to Jesus to be healed, and his friends put him on the mat, and they, you know, they lower him down uh, through the roof. I, I just want us to not do the thing where you go, oh, a paralytic, and we kind of blow past that, and not sort of slow down and go, what is it like if you're a paralytic? I mean, can we slow down for a second and say, all right, if you're a mother, and you have not just a daughter, a little daughter, and she's possessed by an unclean spirit, what is your life like? And I'd say, overall, we, we can't answer that question. We can kind of take a, a swing at it. You could not have mother-daughter normal interaction. I mean, if you have a little girl who's possessed by a demon, you can't just put this child down for bed and whatever the first century equivalent of tucking them in, you can't have that. Um, you can't just talk. The girl can't have friends. That's the one that just gets me. The little girl could not have friends. How could she? Your mother's watching this. Okay, so then you go from the, that's the who, to the what. What is the what? The what is, this is a mom on a rescue mission. Now, what are moms like when they have a child with a need and there's something over here that meets the need and there's like a 900-pound gorilla in between? They kill the gorilla with their bare hands and they feel good about it. That's what moms do. It says in uh, Mark chapter 3, and it's interesting that Mark gave you this detail early on because of how it's important now. In Mark chapter 3, it talks about that Jesus' reputation began to just spread into larger areas. And one of the places where the news about him, who he was, what he could do, went into Tyre and Sidon. So whether she heard that on the front wave or, or later on or recently, she has heard that there is this man. And he can cast demons out of people. And she is a mom. And her little girl has a demon. She is going to get to Jesus. The end. That's the what. Um, where is it? Now, I've already said this, but let me, let me say it again. It's a region where in the eyes of first century devout Jews, everybody there is unclean. Everybody there is ritually impure. When is it? When is this text? Now, I don't know month and year, but for our purposes, it's right after the text that we studied last week. What was the text about that we studied last week? It's the big first chunk of Mark 7. It's about, of all things, when Jesus' disciples, they did not wash their hands ritually, the way you're supposed to wash your hands as a devout Jew, before you eat. And this washing had nothing to do with hygiene or microbes it had to do with being ritually pure according to Jewish tradition. They had not done that, and Jesus gets into a dispute 
with the Jewish leaders about what makes a person clean or unclean. Is it enough just to be ritually pure, ritually clean? Or are there deeper problems? Who is clean and who is unclean? And then the very next passage is Jesus is in unclean territory talking to a woman. He was just in clean territory talking to people who did not get it. Now he's in unclean territory talking with, well, not yet, with this woman. She's talking to him. All right, so that's the who, what, where, when. Now, why? And when you ask the why question, what are you asking why about? You're asking why did he answer her the way he answered her? Why did he say that? Let's read it again. Look in verse uh, 27. In fact, let's go back a verse just to, just to get the feel of it. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. One little grammatical point here. This, this text is so short, we're kind of zero and way in. The verb in the original that we translate, she begged him, is in the imperfect tense. It's not just in the past tense. And the reason that's important is because in Greek, the imperfect tense is the tense of continued action, meaning she didn't just go and fall in front of him and say, help me, Lord, please, please help me. She just kept doing that. Lord, help me. Please help me. My daughter is possessed by a demon. Help me. Lord, help me. And he's not responding. So she keeps on. And so finally he says something. Verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that, that last word is the rub. He seems to be calling her a dog. Why would he do that? Let's stop for a second and think about how was that word used by devout Jews in his cultural setting. Um, A a New Testament scholar named Peter O'Brien, he was writing about another New Testament passage that that uses the term dogs. He was commenting on it. And listen to what he said. Quote, Dogs and Gentiles in some contexts, and he means like a devout Jewish context, were almost synonymous. As a religious term, it was applied by Jews to Gentiles or lapsed Jews who were ritually unclean and thus outside the covenant. In other words, if you were hardcore, if you were a devout Jewish person, you kept the tradition of the elders, you wouldn't just look at an ethnically non-Jewish person like this woman as a dog. You would look at the disciples earlier in the chapter when they you know, weren't washing their hands the right way. You might regard them as dogs. But can you imagine what it would do to your insides if you had been taught and if it had been modeled to you, those people who don't keep the law and the prophets are dogs, and we call them dogs. We refer to them as dogs. That was Jesus' cultural setting. Then Then why would he buy into it and say it? Let me ask you this. Have you read The Help, Catherine Stockett, or seen the movie? It's set in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi. If you read that book, you're going to see more than once the appearance of racial epithets. 
early 60s Jackson, Mississippi, um, a fiery time. When You're going to see the N-word. When you see the N-word on the lips of characters, is Catherine Stockett wanting to commend that to you? She's putting it on people's lips to make us wince. Is she commending? No, she's critiquing it. All kinds of Southern writers have done that with that word. Were there other people around? I, I have to believe there were because does Jesus really treat people, Gentiles, whoever, women, like they're dogs? No. Everything in the Gospels screams no. But his setting does. And you can almost picture him saying, I, I, I don't know, ma'am. I don't know that it's appropriate to give bread that's only for the children and give it to the dogs. Now, my favorite part. You would think that here's this woman. She cannot have mother-daughter. Her child cannot have friends. She cannot have a calm home. She probably cannot do hospitality. Her life right now is in trauma. And she has gone, and she hasn't just asked him once, but she has flung herself at his feet, and she's pleading with him, help me, help me, help me. And then finally, after the silence, he answers her and says what he said. And she said, and this is where I just, she got me when she said this. We can't give the children's bread to dogs. She says, yes, Lord. Okay, stop. There's fake humility, and there's real deal humility. Fake humility is where, where, like, for instance, we come together and we say like a big, you know, corporate confession of sin, and you know, I, I am, you know, I've broken your holy laws, and we've wandered off like sheep. And then someone actually challenges me about something, and someone dares to insinuate that I made a mistake, and my response is, and then we find out what's in the heart. She is living in trauma, and he just essentially called her and her people dogs, and she says, okay, granted, I need a crumb. She doesn't get defensive. She doesn't say, do you understand the stress I'm under, and you would call me a name like that? She doesn't disagree, but she says, Lord, I, I really don't need a whole loaf but you are so big. I just need a crumb. And I would be on my way. Now, I said this when I talked on the Matthew parallel of this, but it is like we are in a poker game, and this entire time that the woman has been pleading at Jesus' feet, that his cards have been just right by his vest, and that when she says, yes, Lord, but I just need a crumb, that Jesus, only time in the gospel, says, fold, and just pushes the whole stack of chips over to her. That she got it. And, uh, of course, we can't... We, there's, there's all this stuff that we don't know, but I have to believe that the next two weeks in her home were like the first five minutes of Christmas. That... Whew, it does record this, that when she went home, uh, the daughter's in bed. But no drama. And so now she can lean in for her kiss and hug, and it's safe. 
And the next morning, if she wants to do what moms do, if she wants to walk with her little girl down to that Gentile market or where the, where the vendors had set up on the street, if she wants to walk down there and do that, she can. And there's not going to be an incident. Because why? Is this just a parlor trick? No. Why does, why does Mark want us to know this? She's going to be able to do that because Jesus is God. And He is the King of kings. He is King over the weather. He is King over food. He is King over human thought. He is King over the forces of darkness. He is the Messiah. That's why she can hold her daughter's hand and go to the market. All right, how about some application? A couple of things. The first is this. It may be that you're coming from a background where you either did not grow up with the church, excuse me, or you've been away from church. And so maybe this is very new to you, or I've got a background with it, but I I took a big break from it, and now easing back in. Um, It may be that if that's you, you might be looking around at other people and feel like, they just know so much more, you know? And uh, when somebody says, turn in Habakkuk 3, they just... And they know where to... And I have no... I don't even know which testament it's in. I... I don't have that background, and my, or my parents didn't teach me that. Or I, I just uh, I feel so behind. I feel like I'm never going to catch up. And think about how great it is that the Gospel of Mark was written for Gentile readers, and that when this probably was read to them before they maybe even read it. I mean, not many people had actual books or parchments, but just hearing this as a Gentile, someone read it to you to think when he was in Jewish community with the Jewish people that grew up with the Law and the Prophets, they didn't get it. And then he's with this woman, and she hasn't grown up in the synagogue. And she didn't grow up with all this stuff. And she gets it. And he commends her. Imagine how encouraging that was to say, maybe I don't have to know Hebrew. Maybe I don't have to have had this just multi-generational background with God and His people. Maybe if I know a little bit and go with that, that God does great things in my life. I mean, how much did this woman know? She knew that He's Lord. Did she know that He's the Son of God? That she had a developed theology of Jesus Christ? No. She knows He's Lord. She knows that He helps people. She knows that if she pleads with him and just kind of goes to the mat for, I just, Lord, am telling you, I need mercy. That he's great and he'll give it. Because that is extremely encouraging. You don't have to be the smartest theologian in the room to see God work powerfully in your life. Should we delve into the Word? Please do. Is it great to have a Christian parent, Christian grandparent? Oh, yeah. But you don't have to have much for Jesus to look at you and smile. The other thing 
is, you know, I thought about just the posture of this woman. It's so intense. Short passage, but she's just on her knees and she's just, help me. Ugh. And I thought about, for the rest of the gospel, are there any other episodes where somebody falls in front of Jesus? No, excuse me. Is there another episode where someone falls to the ground and begs? And there is. It's uh, in Mark chapter 14, and it's Jesus. It says in Mark chapter 14 that when the reality of what was about to happen with his imminent arrest and the sequence of events that that would send him into that would end with him falling under the wrath of God. And he had been telling his disciples, this is what I came to do, this is what I came to do. This is what I came to do. They're going to kill me and then I'll rise. And when he gets right to it, it so overwhelms him in his humanity that he physically falls to the ground, Mark says, and he begs God, is there some other way we can do this? Is there some other way that my people can be in heaven with you and with me? Is there some, is there some other way that their sins can be taken away? And the unrecorded answer is no. He begged God three times. The answer is no. And then at the end of the Gospel of Mark, he's raised from the dead. The actual, physical, witnessed resurrection of the man killed on the cross. What does that give us? It gives us this certainty that because he went first, he begged, he begged, he begged. No. But now he's alive and with great joy. Jesus has all joy now. What does that give us? Because he went first, here's what that gives us. Let's go back to you. It may be that you're going, I have, I have not just prayed for three days. I'm not one of these people that went, I have prayed the last two days that God would do such and such, and he hasn't yet. Like that's just this incredible, you know, uncharted waters of suffering and prayer. Say, no, I've been praying for this for ten years. And it's, it, on, on this one at least, it's like he's just staring back at me. Here's the thing the Christian can know. Do you, if you're pleading for physical healing, for you or for someone else, do you know that you'll get it in this life? And biblically the answer is no. But if you are in Christ, when you're raised at the last day, and you become an inhabitant, not of the old cursed earth, but of the new heavens and the new earth, can you know that you will be physically healed? Yes. Forever. If you are emotionally sick, whatever that looks like, I just, I can't feel joy. I'm up, I'm down, I'm distraught. Everything has a black cloud over it. Can you know, if you pray and pray and plead and ask with God, that He'll take it away in this life? No. Why would he do that? I have no idea. Could that woman have known at that moment when she's just begging him, begging him, and he's ignoring her, could she have known that 2,000 years later on another continent, a group of white people, mostly, would be listening to this, mostly Gentiles, but another kind of Gentile, being blessed by it? She could not know that. But we are. And God knew the plan. And so she suffered and then, 
in his mercy, she got the very thing that she asked for. And this is, this is the plea, is that Jesus, he suffered, he cried, he cried out. Hebrews says that in the days of Jesus' life on earth, he prayed with cries and tears. And he died. And then he rose. And now he reigns. And he's going to come back. Here's what that empowers us to do. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Let's do that and not give up asking. Let's be the people who ask and seek and knock and don't stop. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, all of us need you to look on us with mercy. Oh Jesus, the Jews need you. The Gentiles need you. Men, women, children need you. And we ask you that you would be merciful to us, that you would so drive it down deep into our hearts that you knelt on the ground, you fell down, and you begged. And the answer was no, that because you received no, if we are in Christ, we will get our yes. We will get our yes. Would you bind us up? Would you not snuff out our smoldering wick? Would you fan these little flames? To the person here who does not yet know Jesus as the great helper of sinners, would you turn his or her heart towards you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.